Well, good morning, everyone. Happy New Year. It is really good to see you. Uh, it's good to have a great Christmas time together and with families and have some fun, different experiences uh, with that. And then it's good to kind of get back into maybe a normal pattern of of doing things in life and um, just excited to be getting back in that normal season with you guys. I want to tell you about one of my family's favorite games. It's called Seven Wonders. Uh, It is a game. It's like a smart person game. We like to kid ourselves that we're smart in our family. The game is all about uh, building little kingdoms. And each person is assigned one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. And that's how we kid ourselves, that we're smart in our family. Because this game, you get to look at these seven ancient wonders that no one really talks about anymore. And you build a kingdom that's associated with that wonder. And uh, the winner of the game is the person that best develops their little kingdom by growing the, the commerce, the, um, the military strength, the education and science systems of this little, little ancient kingdom. And, and you know, if you do that best and you prevent your opponents from uh, doing that, you win the game. And uh, there's a, you, you kind of learn about maybe what the, what the story would be like living in one of those ancient civilizations, just a little bit. So um, there's this story that you get to be a part of in this game. And you, you, you know, kind of develop that story. And um, one of the interesting things about that game and thinking about that storyline that you get to be a part of is... Um, that it that it comes to an end because no one really talks about the seven wonders of the ancient world anymore, right? Those those ancient storylines have come and they have gone. Uh, the the kingdoms that those ancient wonders were a part of the the ancient Babylonians or the ancient Egyptians or the ancient Greeks or the ancient Romans. Does anyone talk about the ancient Babylonians anymore except for maybe in a sermon or maybe as a part of a world history class? No, I mean, these storylines, they come and they go. And it raises a question I want to give to you this morning. Uh, which storyline do you follow with your life? Because you've got a storyline that you are tapping into. Maybe you're trying to shape that storyline. We follow some story. That story may be similar to the storyline of that game, Seven Wonders, acquire, grow, build up your little kingdom. Does that ever seem like it's the the storyline that you are following? Build up my kingdom and try to gain power and security. If so, take history for a lesson and remember that you know, those storylines have kind of come and gone, and no one talks about them anymore. If your story is all about your kingdom someday, it most definitely will come to an end. What we want to do 
with uh, this new year is start a new series about your story. There is a story that you can make your story, and it is a storyline that will go on forever and ever, and it's the storyline of God. Once you look at the scripture from Psalm chapter 33, about God's storyline being the one that endures, the Lord foils the plans of the nations. He thwarts the purposes of the people's but the plans of the Lord stand firm forever. His purposes, the purposes of his heart, will endure through all generations. So we're starting this new series. Talk about the, the Lord's story, his purposes, his plans. The name of this series is called His Story Can Change Yours. See, the Bible tells this story of God's ultimate purposes. And uh, actually, starting next week, we're going to start looking at what those purposes are. There's one main purpose, big purpose, that is highlighted at the very beginning of the Bible, and it works its way throughout all the scriptures, and that's what we're going to talk about next week. But today, we're going to start looking at God's invitation to be a part of his plans, his purposes. That's what today is about. And we're going to start by looking at Genesis chapter 1. Verse 1, page 1, if you're using um, our Bible, on Sunday 1 of 2020. So if you have a Bible, uh, open it up to Genesis chapter 1. Use one of our Bibles if you uh, don't have one. If you don't have a Bible, by the way, I would love to give you one. We've got some in the church office. Come see me after the worship service, and I will uh, gladly give you a Bible. Um, keep it open. Uh, what I try to do is uh, have us read the main scripture together, not on the screens, um, because we want to be with our eyes looking at our Bibles. Um, but I've actually put all the scriptures on the screen today because I want to point out different things about the different verses and want to use the screens to do that. So starting with the very first verse of the Bible, in the beginning... God created the heavens and the earth. Now, that Hebrew word that's in blue there, created, it's a really interesting one. It's a very specific one. It's used just a handful of times in the Scriptures. And one of the things that makes that word created unique is uh, with that word, it's the Hebrew word bara. And that word is only used with God as its subject. God is the only one who can barah. He's the only one who can do that kind of creation. See, you can take some raw materials and you can create something out of that, right? You can go to the hardware store, you can acquire some lumber, and you can build whatever you want to build, right? You can build a bookshelf, you can build a shed, you can build a house. You can acquire some raw materials. You can acquire some paint, a canvas, and you can make a nice painting with that. You can acquire some groceries and uh, hopefully make a really good meal out of that. That's what we can do. But that's not barahing. Only God can barah. Only God can take nothing and create something. We have the ability to take something 
and create something maybe even better or different. Only God can take nothing and create something. That's what God did. He created all that there is out of nothing. Now, what does this mean? It means two things I want to look at. One, it means that God is the center of the story. If you're the one that can take nothing and create all that there is out of it, that means you are the center of the story. This is the big point of Genesis chapter 1. You see, this. why was Genesis written? Well, uh, for one reason, it was written to correct um, thinking that was, that was going on in the world at this time. Uh, Mesopotamia was kind of the world center at the time that Genesis was written. It was you know, the headquarters, headquarters of, of world thought. And uh, there were these creation stories that came out of ancient Mesopotamia that described uh, how the world was created. One of those stories is called the uh, Enuma Elish. You might have heard of that, remember that from world history. It describes how the world was actually created out of this chaotic and violent battle between the gods. The world was the byproduct of this, of this huge battle. According to the Enuma Elish, the earth and the skies were actually made from the defeated and the dead body of an evil goddess named Tiamat. So Genesis 1 corrects this. No, 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 no. This battle between the gods did not create heaven and earth. It is this one sovereign God who is uncontested, who is undaunted, who is the one who created the heavens and the earth. He simply created out of nothing. And the second thing this means is this very unavoidable conclusion. And it's this, that God created you. Since he created everything out of nothing, God created you. And therefore, you belong to him. That has to be the conclusion, if God is the one who created you and all things out of nothing. Um, you know, one of, the, one of the things that made Charles, Dar- Charles Darwin's On the Origins of the Species so popular is that is it offered a different explanation of how the world came to be. You know, that, that work of his where he unfolded his evolutionary theory. And what, what that did is it gave people an opportunity to say, oh, no, 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 God, I don't belong to you because you're not necessary. You're not necessary for creation. I, I came to being through another way other than your creative design. God, God, you're irrelevant. Or, God, you're not real. And therefore, my life can belong to myself. I can live according to my own private storyline, the one that I want to create for myself. And so I hope to show us that your best story is the one that God is the very center of. So with that in mind, let's, um, let's look at Genesis chapter 1, verse 2. Now the earth was formless and empty, and darkness was over the surface of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. Now what comes to mind when you 
read that verse. Let me tell you what um, was one of my kind of original mental images of verse 2. This, this kind of smooth, spherical, gray ball, like it's made out of clay, and it's in this, this dark black background. And this is this, this earth that was formless and empty, this nice little sphere ready then to be shaped and, and filled in with stuff. But um, that's actually not what those two words, formless and empty, uh, refer to. Those two words, I know this is going to come off as like a Bible study. Sometimes we need Bible studies to take sections of the Bible that might not be entirely clear in our day and age and, um, and work at what the original writer of Genesis or any part of the Bible really meant. So what does Genesis 1 mean? Oh, I don't know. Let me, let me tell you what it meant for the ancient Hebrew people. So, formless and empty, those two words um, are the Hebrew words tohu and bohu. It's kind of cool sounding together, tohu and bohu. That was the condition of the original world here in in verse 2. And tohu and bohu, what do they mean? Well, they're only used three times in Scripture together. One other time is in uh, Jeremiah, and it's saying the same thing. It's talking about the original condition of the world. Tohu and Bohu. The other time that they're used together is in the book of um, Isaiah. And they they have some a, a different connotation than what you might think in Genesis 1. I want to read from Isaiah how they are used. Um, Isaiah chapter 34, 11, describes what God is going to do to these nations that are opposing him. God's going to judge them. And here's what it says. It, and that's the nation that God is judging. By the way, it's multiple nations, but there's one nation, Edom, that is kind of the, the figurehead for these nations that are opposing God that God's going to judge. It will not be quenched night or day. Its smoke will rise forever. From generation to generation, it will lie desolate. God will stretch out over Edom. The measuring line of chaos, that's the word tohu, and the plumb line of desolation, and that's the word bohu. So Genesis chapter 1, it's not talking about this kind of this empty, nice, smooth, spherical world that has not yet been formed. It's talking about a world of chaos. It's not describing a world without stuff. It's describing a world without purpose. You know, what, what, is, what does someone mean when they say, oh, life has been pretty chaotic lately? Someone might say that of their life. How's life? Oh, man, it's pretty chaotic. What does that person mean? Well, the person could mean that it, well, it's busy. That's not what chaos really means. Chaos doesn't mean it's really busy. Chaos is what you use to describe something that's not working according to its design. Um, that the events of life don't seem to be working together to, to move life in one direction or a direction that person might want life to be going. It's just chaos. It's, 
is crazy. It seems meaningless and purposeless, everything that's happening to me. That's chaos. So Genesis 1 verse 2 isn't talking about a world without stuff. It's talking about a world without purpose. It's not describing an empty world, but a meaningless world. When things are chaotic, there can be stuff. There can be things, just the things aren't working towards their design, God's given design for them. Things aren't working towards some common end or some common goal that God would have them move towards. And Genesis 1 verse 2 says that the Spirit of God was hovering over this world with no purpose, with no meaning. And that that word hovering is a, is a rare word, very uh, rarely used in Scripture. The only other time that it's used in kind of in a similar fashion is describing a mother bird hovering protectively over her, her little chicks with its wings spread out in this protective fashion. So God's Spirit was hovering protectively over creation, ready to bring order, design, purpose, meaning. So let me give you, I think, what one of the best ways to understand Genesis chapter 1. And it's this. God is always at work to bring order out of chaos. If you keep that in mind, it helps you understand what Genesis chapter 1 is really about. See, over the past several centuries, it has seemed that Genesis chapter 1 has caused more confusion, caused more doubt than it has provided answers in faith, at least for many people. Have you ever heard someone say, "Ah, it just seems like the Bible is out of touch with science? People will will point to several things in Scripture when they're coming from a position of doubt and skepticism uh, to, to the Bible. They're skeptical of it. It seems like it's out of touch. It's offering up these just obsolete, archaic ways of understanding science and how things came to be. They might talk about the age of the earth. Boy, it sure seems like the bulk of science supports an earth that's millions, billions of years old, and they have a hard time reconciling it with six days of creation in Genesis chapter 1. And, and there's lots of different arguments that have come up to, well, how can we how can we understand days in a way that makes it fit a view that the earth is, is old? If you believe that the earth is old, people come up with all different ways to understand the word day in order to fit things together. Or the skeptic might say, listen, this, this Genesis chapter 1 is just out of touch with science. And they'll point to, um, they'll point to um, uh, let me bring up uh, verses 6 and 7. This is, this is a good example of where someone might say, this just seems out of touch with science. And God said, this is uh, the second day, God said, let there be a vault between the waters to separate water from water. So God made the vault what is the vault? And separated the water under the vault from the water above it. So if you're looking at maybe the King James translation, one of the older translations, it might say firmament, not vault, firmament. What's a firmament? Well, it comes from the word firm. It means a, a firm structure. 
a solid structure that God put in place to separate the waters that we have on the earth from the waters that are above, whatever that is. Okay, and people will say, well, scientifically, there's not some glass dome or this firm structure over the atmosphere. No, we set up rockets into space. They didn't hit some glass sphere protecting the earth. What is this vault? What is this firmament? The Bible is just out of touch with science. It just doesn't seem to mesh with the physical world as we know it. So, how do we make sense of Genesis chapter 1? I want you to remember a phrase when you think of Genesis 1. Think, why, not how. The opening to Genesis was written to explain why things were made, not so much how things were made. People in ancient cultures were much more concerned with why something existed and not how something existed. In fact, we think that's pretty important today as well. Why something exists and not how something exists. Say you get a new, shiny car, and you love it because it looks great. And you park it in your garage so it'll be protected. And this nice, shiny car gives you great joy. But if it just sits in your garage so you can look at it, What's the point, right? It's not fulfilling its purpose. Why it was created is to get you from here to there, not so it can sit in your garage. It's existing realistically, but it's not existing functionally. So who cares? You could, you could buy a nice painting for your house, and you could stick it into a, a dark closet where it's never seen. Who cares? It's existing physically. It's not existing functionally. Functionally, it was meant for you to look at it and enjoy it and see beauty. One of the things we did over Christmas, we bought a stereo receiver at our house. See, when we bought our house, the original homeowners had these stereo speakers put in the ceiling. I didn't know they were there until I went into the attic. I said, oh, those speakers are still there. We lived in the house for a year. They physically existed those speakers. They didn't functionally exist. They weren't working. We didn't have anything to plug into them to make the sound go through them. Who cares? Now they functionally exist as well, and we enjoy those speakers. We care about why something exists and not just how something exists. The ancient people, that's, that's what they cared about. That's why Genesis 1 was written, to describe why things exist, not how things exist. So, I want to go through, real briefly, just these six days of creation. I'm going to just spend a little time on each day, not long. And I want us to view Genesis chapter 1 through the lens of why, not how. So, verse 3, And God said, Let there be light, and there was light. God saw that the light was good, and he separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day, and the darkness he called night. And there is evening, and there is morning, the first day. Keep verse 5 up just for a second. How did God create the light? If you make these verses a question of how instead of why, 
Well, then you got some figuring out to do because it turns out that God didn't create the sun and the moon and the stars until day four. This is the first day. So how was there light? Did Was God the light? Did God just kind of make things light even though the sun hadn't been created? Well, maybe. But this isn't describing how God made light, but why did God made, make light? Verse 5 gives us the reason. God called the light, isn't this interesting? He called it day. He didn't call light illumination. He didn't call light brightness or whatever other synonym we use for light today. He called light day. He called dark night. And there was evening and there was morning the first day. This says, this makes the first day. Why is this important? Because God, what did God just do? He made time. He made time in day one. See, verses three through five are much more interested in telling us that God gives function to light and day. They make time for us. Look at the second day. And God said, let there be a vault, back to the vault, between the waters to separate water from water. So God made the vault, and he separated the water under the vault from the water above it, and it was so. God called the vault sky, and there is evening, and there is morning the second day. Again, think how, I mean, think why, not how. Why did God create the sky, not how did God create the sky? Why does, what does the sky do? What function does it serve? It gives us air to breathe. I'm pretty thankful for the sky, right? Makes life a lot longer for us. Um, It provides rain, a source of of water, right? Gives us atmosphere, sun, water, rain. Third day, and God said, let there be... Uh, verse 9, let there be, let the water under the ground, I'm sorry, let the water under the sky be gathered to one place and let dry ground appear. And it was so. God called the dry ground land and the gathered waters he called the seas. And God saw that it was good. Well, why did God create land? Verse 11 gives us the purpose. God said, let the land produce vegetation seed-bearing plants and trees on the land that bear fruit. There's purpose with the trees and the plants that bear fruit and seed in it according to the various kinds, and it was so. Now, there could be lots of purposes for the land. We could brainstorm lots of good things that the land does. But a really important one is providing food for us. Now, take a moment. Just in your mind, I want you to make a mental list of what are the, the, the bare necessities for life? Like, what, what do we need to be alive? You know, Maslow's hierarchy, well, think of just really, really, really basics. What do we need? Food, water, air, <laughs> shelter. What, what, what about so that's days two and three right there, right? 
God providing for the essentials of life. What about day one? What about time? How do we relate to one another? We relate to one. I mean, how do we how do we have relationships? It's through time. It's it's by res- interacting with one another through time. You do something, or you say something, and I respond to it, and we we have this relationship. Imagine life without time. I mean, God in the first three days of creation provide the absolute essentials for this life that He wants us to have. All right, God continues to establish function and order through the the remaining three days. Real fast through it. On day four, God made two great lights. This is where the sun comes in. The greater light to govern the day, the lesser light to govern the night. He also made the stars. God set them in the vault of the sky to give light on the earth. He gave them a function. Here's your function. Here's your purpose. Provide light. Govern time, the day and the night. Why is this important to point out the function? Well, in the ancient world, people looked at the sun and the moon and the stars, and what did they do? They didn't say, ooh, this is giving us light. This is saying, well, these are gods, and I'm going to worship them. What does Genesis 1 say in response to that? They're not gods. Those things in the sky, those aren't gods to worship. God made those so that they would serve his purposes. Day five, and God said, let the water teem with living creatures and let birds fly above the earth, across the vault of the sky. So God created the great creatures of the sky and every living thing with which the water teems and that moves about in it. So look at verse 21, a highlighted word, words, great Creatures. That's putting that very tamely. Great creatures. Because what the original language really means are giant monsters. Okay? Does not mean great creatures, it means giant monsters that are in the sea. So you may have heard of the Leviathan. I think there was a movie, never saw it called Leviathan. What's the Leviathan? It's in Scripture, right? What is the Leviathan? I don't know. Well, I'll tell you what it is. It's a great sea creature. It's a sea monster. It's in the Bible. Didn't Godzilla come out of the sea, right? So the ancient world has been occupied with monsters in the sea, the Leviathan, whatever that is. And they were terrified of these creatures. What is the purpose of of this in Genesis? Talking about the great monsters of the sea. Well, the purpose is to say, you fear the great monsters of the sea? God made that. Whatever that sea, the great creatures of the sea. God made them to do his purposes. You don't have to fear them. They're not these crazy monsters. They're they're creatures of God. Genesis 1 helps people to have a real picture of why things exist to bring peace and security in their life instead of fear over what is out there. 
Do you get the picture of Genesis 1? God created everything. And God gives order and purpose and function to everything. Everything exists to fulfill God's purposes. And since everything exists to fulfill God's purposes, you exist to fulfill God's purposes. You exist for God's story. You exist not to write your own story, to come up with where you want to go, who you want to, what you want to do. God gives you a storyline to follow. That's what we're going to talk more about next week. Day six starts to talk about that. Look at verse 27. So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. God blessed them and said to them, Be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it. Subdue it. Rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky and over every living creature that moves on the ground. So starting next week, we'll talk about your story, your purposes. Because people can take that little command there to subdue the, ru- the world, rule over it as kind of a open-ended invitation to do whatever I want, Right? I can do whatever I want because God said, hey, rule over the world. Well, I'm going to rule them. I'm going to do what I want. People could take that as an open-ended invitation. So what does God really mean to subdue the world and rule over it? That's what we'll look at next week. But I want to make one very important comment. That's at the the heart of Genesis chapter 1, and it's this. Your story is good when God is at your center. Because that's what God offers us, right? A good story, a good life. You know that phrase that is repeated over and over again in Genesis chapter 1, God saw that creation was good. It appears over and over. Actually, it appears seven times in Genesis chapter 1. God saw that it was good. Seven was that that number in the ancient world that was meant to um, imply completion, perfection. Everything is there. Nothing is missing. Everything is completed as it should be. It's the full amount, the right amount. So, the writer of Genesis chapter 1, likely Moses, was very intentional about mentioning seven times God saw that it was good. He wanted his original readers and hearers to to know how important that is, that God saw that it was good. What does it mean that God saw that creation was good? Does it mean that God looked at everything and said, wow, I completely outdid myself in that. It looks way better than I had in my mind. It's not what it means. It means that God saw that everything was functioning according to his purpose. 
his plan, his design. Everything was working as he gave work for his creation to do. Everything was working according to God's plan and his purposes. It was good. It was good. So when we live in a way that meets God's design for us, that's when we can say, hmm, this is good. My life is good. This is a good story. Now, sometimes we experiencing things that don't seem good, and they can be scary, and life can seem out of control, chaotic, like things aren't moving towards where you want them to go. And maybe this, this new year is starting in that way. Maybe it's starting with some extra worry. Maybe you have something looming regarding your job or your health or your marriage or relationship or finances. Something important that seems pretty scary. Or maybe you just kind of feel aimless this year. What am I doing? What, what? I have no idea what I'm supposed to be doing this year. Remember that your story begins with Genesis chapter 1. Your story begins with a God who is completely in charge. All the time. Over all of creation. And think back to the Holy Spirit responding to the chaos of this new world. Verse 2, how does it describe the Holy Spirit? It doesn't say that the Holy Spirit was frantically fighting the chaos. Holy Spirit didn't have to work really hard to come up with a brilliant plan of what to do with this chaos in the world. How does verse 2 describe the Holy Spirit? It was just hovering. The Holy Spirit was hovering. When you make your life about God's story, you can know that the Holy Spirit is hovering over the details of your life. He is not challenged. He is not confused. He is not perplexed. He is not concerned at least one bit by any of the chaos that you are experiencing. He's not panicked. The Holy Spirit is not wondering, what in the world am I going to do with that crazy situation down there in your life? The Holy Spirit is simply hovering over your life. And he will bring all things towards God's fulfillment for you. And the uncertainty that you're feeling or the pain or the confusion or the frustration that you're feeling because things aren't moving fast enough or far enough or in the right direction, my friends, God is not challenged in the least bit by that. God is an expert at taking what seems like chaos and bringing about his design, his purposes, his order, his direction, his plan, and bring it about something very beautiful and purposeful. So this new year, let us just recommit ourselves, maybe commit ourselves for the first time, if you've never done that, to living according to God's purpose and plan for you. Let's, uh, let's say a prayer. Almighty God, we... We want to start this new year with that prayer. We want to start each day with 
a prayer of commitment to you. We want to live according to your purpose. We want to follow your plan for our life. We know that you've given us great minds and hearts and autonomy in this world to make decisions that really matter. Lord, we pray that you would give a vision and a purpose to our hearts so that we can know what to do, how to respond to others, what to make our life all about. We want to commit ourselves to your purposes in this earth. We pray that each day would not be an empty day for us, but a day where we follow you and listen for your voice and listen to your lead and fulfill your purpose for us. And Lord, where there is chaos in our life, we pray that you would bring order and that you would bring peace to our minds and our hearts, knowing that you will bring all things to your good and glorious end for your glory and for our sake as well. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.